Well, if you would um, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Now, first of all, I want to say we had a great, great Sunday last week. If you weren't here, you want to um, download Pastor Peter Malachar's sermon. And I don't know if this video can be uploaded to our website as well. If we can, that'd be great. Uh, and see what God is doing in that ministry. And uh, it was kind of uncanny hearing Peter Malachar and talking to him briefly as well. And then a few days later, he emailed me. He reminded me so much of uh, Peter Smith. Um, it was like an Indian Peter Smith, <laughs> you know, in terms of his um, zeal for the gospel, zeal, energy for the lost, uh, his dependence upon the Lord on in prayer. Um, his, his encouragement, his servant attitude, just his energy. It was, uh, so I was talking to Sarin, both Sarin and I both felt that way. It was Indian Peter Smith, and she was saying, geez, I wonder if there's an Indian James Shin. <laughs> wow, that's a scary thought, you know. <laughs> a scarier thought is uh, Indian Dan Na. <laughs> I don't know why, but a scarier thought. <laughs> so what an encouragement. Um, in hindsight, I'm glad I didn't ask the Cornerstone dance team to do Jai Ho. It's <laughs> a special presentation. You know, it wouldn't have, wouldn't have been good. But one of my ideas that I shot down by the grace of God. Um, well, we ask you just to pray with us. The elders and pastors are considering our future with uh, the Malachars. And the sense is God's opening our doors and opening our hearts, but we're waiting and, and taking steps uh, as the Lord leads. And uh, it'd be a joy uh, to uh, serve with him. It'd be an honor. Well, this week I had two dilemmas. One dilemma was last night. Uh, my wife's in her 36th week of pregnancy. If you if you if you didn't know, you know now. And uh, Surin's parents still don't know that she's pregnant. Okay, so don't tell them. Okay. <laughs> so uh, the reason is they didn't want us to have more than two. So every time we have more than two, they were so angry with us. So by the time we had number five, we're like, just, we just taught them when we have the baby. And, and they can't be that angry with number five. So, uh, so last night, like 10 o'clock, she's having these severe contractions. And like she was telling me 5% chance we, had, we might have to go to the hospital to, to deliver. So I was right about to call Dan and to ask him to, to fill in for, for me. Uh, but we're still waiting. My next dilemma was, uh, I think we'll have the baby the next uh, few days, a few weeks, and uh, I will take a short break, a couple-week break, to serve my family and be with the baby. Uh, by the same time, so before then, I want to finish Second Timothy. We've got maybe three sermons left, probably just two sermons left, Second Timothy. I want to finish and then have the baby take a break and start fresh afterwards. But today is Mother's Day, right? So the dilemma, do I do a Mother's Day sermon or preach on 2 Timothy 4.3, which is, the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, <laughs> but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, right? Do I preach on that text on Mother's Day or do a Mother's Day sermon? Even though I want to, so I, I decided, you know, it's okay to skip Father's Day. <laughs> to preach that text on Father's Day might be very appropriate. 
but not on Mother's Day. So we're doing a somewhat of a special Mother's Day sermon in light of Exodus 20 and also uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And I, I want to uh, talk to four different groups of people today, four different groups um, that are here today, moms. Children, we got some children in this room, all believers, and finally, to parents. Moms, children, all believers, and parents. So I think this sermon will be relevant to everyone. No one's, uh, you know, no one is left out, excluded from this, from this teaching, uh, because everyone will find something to, to help them. First group is moms. So several times on Mother's Days in previous years, I would, I often taught on Proverbs 31. And the title of the sermon was something like, The Marks of a Godly Wife, or The Characteristics of a Godly Mother. And it was, uh, you know, my gift to the moms that were at our church. But it turns out it wasn't such a great gift. It was a good gift, but not a great gift. It was a gift with, um, you know, requirements. It was a gift with, a, with burdens. It was like, it's like someone giving you a gift of a treadmill, right? <laughs> this 500-pound treadmill, they give it to you, and it's in the middle of your, like, living room. It's a gift, but it's a burden because now you've got to use this thing, right? Like someone gives you a gift of a gym membership or gives you a gift of a fruit basket, right? It's a gift... But you got to eat that fruit <laughs> that, that, that you received instead of like chocolate or something. I so I, I unintentionally burdened and even criticized moms with, with those kinds of, that kind of sermon. How, how did I do this? You know, we would study Proverbs 31 and we would look at the various qualities of, a virtu- of the virtuous wife described in Proverbs 31 how she does her husband good all, her, all his life, verse 12, and how she brings food from afar. She's not a, she doesn't work the microwave, right? She doesn't serve processed food. She you know, cooks out of, from scratch and brings it from afar and makes choice meals for her family and for her servants. Verse 15, she rises uh, before dawn to prepare a warm breakfast right, for her family and for even her servants. Uh, she's a keen businesswoman. Right? She doesn't just fry the bacon. She brings the bacon home. She earns that bacon by c- conducting business in the world. She has strong arms, it says. So she doesn't burden her husband with opening jars. Right? She opens jars herself. Right? She's got strong, strong biceps. And uh, she stays up late to what? To, uh, to sew her bed sheets. Right? I mean, that's how industrious this woman is. And on and on and on. And there was nothing unbiblical in my exegesis of Proverbs 31. Uh, But it was a burden and it was difficult because the focus and the source of Proverbs 31 was misplaced. Uh, Preaching this, divorce from the gospel grace faith dynamic, gave gave the sense to the moms that you need to grow in these areas. You need to be diligent in imitating and pursuing these marks found in Proverbs 31. 
So you need to wake up early, work hard, be godly, wise, disciplined, and strong. And you husbands out there, you need to teach and train your wives to be like this and encourage them if they do, the, do it right and then kind of shame them, right? Produce guilt in them if they fail. Um, it was divorce from the grace of God. What I, what I failed to see was that Proverbs 31 is the fruit and not the root. Right? Is the fruit and not the root. Um, just describing the virtuous woman from Proverbs 31 doesn't help anyone to become Proverbs 31 woman. It helps us to recognize in others if they are a virtuous wife or a mom. It enables us to envy and, 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 and just be discouraged by them. It allows us to either boast in ourselves if we, not me, but you know, women, moms out there, enables you to boast in yourselves if you are waking up early and staying up late and you know, does good to your husband all your life. At the same time, it causes you to accuse yourself and condemn yourself if you fall short in these areas. It does all those things, but does nothing in helping you to be this woman. Um, because we had divorced it from you know, gospel and grace. And I, I think that's one of the, the weaknesses and the pitfalls of expository preaching that I'm, I'm learning. That as we study through a book of the Bible, for example, Ephesians, you do a series of the book of Ephesians, and Paul wrote that letter intending that Christians would read that letter at one sitting. So if someone wrote you one letter, you don't, read it in parts, and you don't fragment it, and you don't take portions and study a sentence divorced from the basis of that, of that command. But studying it verse by verse, we would often study ver- chapter 4 and forget about chapters 1, 2, and 3. Study chapters 5 or 6, even Romans 13 through 15. We would study it and be so engrossed in that study, we would forget about the key therefore, that all these commands flow out of the gospel. All these imperatives flow out of grace given to us in Christ in view of God's mercies, therefore. And that's one of the things we, need, we are learning to do, that every time we study, we need to connect it to what God has already done. So in Proverbs 31, what had God done for this Proverbs 31 Women to be possible in our, in, in, our, in our lives. And it's found in Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So how did this woman have these qualities of godliness? How was she able to be so wise in relating to her husband, her servants, the world, or her children, with herself, with her friends, with her community, with society. Where did she get this wisdom? And not just knowledge, right? It's different, knowledge and wisdom. She was able to have this knowledge and appropriate it to her life. And even to her most mundane, um, mundane activities of her life, she was able to apply, apply God's truth and live according to it. Where did she get this ability from? And it was not because anything resonant in herself, it's because of her fear of the Lord, right? her, her love for God, her reverence for all of who God is and what he has done. Even Proverbs 3, 
5 through 7, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So here was a woman who trusted in the Lord. She did not lean on her own understanding of what it means to be a, a, a godly wife, right? a virtuous mother. She, she submitted herself to God through faith. And what God produced is this life. And so we are to imitate her faith and not her deeds because they are the fruit and not the root. That makes sense? Being a, a godly man or a godly woman is not our job. It's, it's God's job. It's the Holy Spirit's work. You know, um, I don't know if this is going to work or not, but years ago, there was a superhero before this whole Iron Man thing. Right? The superhero that I looked up to growing up was the $6 million man. Right? You guys remember him? So with inflation, he's probably the $60 million man. Right? <laughs> Lee Majors, you guys. Anybody watch that on TV? Like showing our age here. Uh, Gary's hand goes up, definitely. <laughs> and he was the man, right? He was an astronaut, right? He got into an accident, and so doctors give him a new eye, right? You have better hearing too? I don't remember. Right? A strong arm and, and legs, and he could r- run fast. And we forget the distinction between organic and synthetic. We think that's what the Christian life is. We need to rebuild ourselves synthetically it's through our efforts. So we're not good in our home as husbands or wives. I need to you know, build a good godly life at home. I'm not a good parent. I'm not a good worker. I'm not a good student. I'm not a good minister. So we work and we put artificial parts to make ourselves improve ourselves, make ourselves better. But that's the synthetic approach. That's not the biblical approach. That's not the spirit work. The spirit work is organic. In 1 Corinthians 3, we water, we sow, but it is God who causes growth. The way God causes growth is not giving us artificial like limbs or artificial parts in our lives to make us more effective in, in, in life. But he transforms our hearts to the Holy Spirit. He changes the inner man. And through that hard change becomes the change in our minds. Our, our, our thinking is renewed. And as our thinking is renewed, our behavior changes. What we do changes. So the behavior is the fruit, not the root. So when we see somebody's behavior change, our heart is, give me faith like that person. I want to repent of my sins and trust in the Lord like that person, not... I want to bypass that repentance part. I want to skip over the faith part. I just want to do what that person is doing. How does that happen? How does this heart transformation work happen? Especially the moms out there this morning, I'm speaking to you. How does that happen? You know, I think today that's why you know, God brought Sarah to share her testimony with us. Because she is, um, you know... Classic example. <laughs> you know, uh, 
medical doctor, right? I mean, she, you know, stay-at-home mom, but she's a medical doctor. She's very uh, disciplined, very smart, very able, right? excellent wife, excellent mom. You know, sorry, Sarah, you know, but I didn't plan this, but it's not on my notes, but you know, <laughs> you set me up, very good Christian. And so for her, it's so hard to see sin in her own righteousness, sin in her own life, because and she's smart, I mean, all those things. And yet God brings trials into her life to reveal what's in her heart. Not in what she does, but what, what she, who she is, what she's thinking, what she's believing and not believing. And she sees what, how sinful she really is. That really at the core of her being, she has nothing to boast of before God who's omniscient. And that drives her to Christ, drives her to depend on God's grace. And so she didn't depend on grace for her medical degree, right, for changing diapers or, you know, taking care of the family. But in terms of righteousness, that's the only thing she can stand on. She goes to God, and in, in, the, in the midst of her having her sins numbering more than the hair on her head, she experiences God's love toward her. God is not uh, sentimental. He's not, he's not undiscerning. He knows her completely, knows all her sins, and yet through his son demonstrated his love for us, love for her through the cross, and demonstrates his continuing love for her through the cross. And therefore that melts her heart, and she understands her sinfulness and God's grace and heart change happens and her mind is renewed and her behavior is changing. So for all you moms out there, you know, your, your husband is a gift to you, instrument of God's righteousness <laughs> to expose the, the rage that's in your heart, <laughs> the unbelief, right? The, the legalism that's in your heart is being provoked by your husband. He's, your, he's God's gift to you, right? What is God doing is God killing you? No, he's going to save you through your husband. And your rotten, sinful kids that are out there, <laughs> uh, these little monsters, right, that are out there, they are God's gift to you. They're frustrating you to no end. Uh, it's demoralizing you. It's causing you to lose hope. You feel like, so today, next year I'm going to do this. I want to give this sermon today, but next year, instead of the marks of a godly woman or a godly mom, next week your sermon would be, Grace for failing moms. Right? You feel like a failure as a mom. And that's like, that's so hard for a mom, right? You feel failure as a mom as you see your child or your children or see your family. Well, God is doing that so that you would no longer rely upon yourself, but rely upon Christ. And when you do that, then God's grace um, breaks through. And melts your hearts and causes you to um, trust in the Lord. And this is what was happening in uh, Luke chapter 7 with that immoral woman who came to Christ and she was uh, washing the Lord's feet with her hair. And Simon the Pharisee was right there and he had right doctrine. He had a high view of God. He understood sin. But all that knowledge did nothing for his heart. His heart was filled with self-righteousness, 
filled with anger at Christ and this woman and her immorality and how dare she come and, and touch, this, touch Jesus and Jesus, what a fool. He has no idea who is touching him so he cannot be the Messiah. But this immoral woman, what is her heart? She is crying and she is praising God. She's thanking Jesus, washing his feet with her hair and her tears. How is this possible? Because unlike the Pharisee, uh, she saw the greatness of her sins. And she understood the gospel that Jesus preached, that she is accepted not through her righteousness, but through grace, through grace, by grace through faith. And that caused her to worship the Lord. So for moms, may that, um, this is my gift to you, as our church's gift to you, it may not be a treadmill in the middle of your house. Maybe a nice, like, you know, massage chair. <laughs> nice mattress with, like, you know, candles and, I don't know, with a nice fan and air conditioning on. Uh, why? Because God wants to uh, show you his greatness, show you his goodness to the cross, uh, show you his love for you as you repent of your sin, renounce your you're striving in the flesh and trusting in Him. So that's first group, moms. Second group, Ephesians 6.1. Very easy. We've got some children in this room, right? I see Karis. I see Everett, JJ. Right? I see Jacob. It's like a romper room. I see <laughs> Daniel Choi. Right? So kids, it's for you. Right? Pastor James is talking to you on Mother's Day. And the message is simple. Children, obey your parents. All the parents are leaping with joy. Right? Obey your parents. God's word is a direct command to you. God's will for you to obey your parents. And, you know, well, you're saying, I'm not a Christian. So how can I be motivated by the gospel when I'm not a Christian? No, Paul says, obey your parents because it's right. <laughs> right? Not whether you're a Christian or not. It's not by because of grace of the gospel. God calls you to obey because through... Through common grace, right? Through natural divine order, God has instituted authority and God desires you to obey. Right? God's call for you is to obey mom and dad. And this is a key responsibility given to parents to instill in our children this concept of authority and submission. Right? This is my job. All parents is your job. We need to teach and train our children that authority is good. That God established a vertical world for us and everyone is to submit themselves to authority and children are not exempted from this responsibility. We are to help our children embrace this concept of hierarchy, teaching them about the authority of God. He is the creator authority of government to rule people, authority of the husband over the wife, authority over parents over children, and children have authority over animals, right? They can eat animals. <laughs> they can collect bugs. They could pick flowers. They have authority over these things, creatures. Right? This is God's designed order, and we all line up under it. And so when the husband submits to the government, he's submitting to the father, right? 
when the wife submits to her husband, she is submitting to the father. And when children submit and obey parents, they are submitting to the father. We need to uh, help our children understand this concept of authority and submission because it is God's design. It is based on natural law. It is a process. It's not an event. Ongoing process to their whole lives. And remind them and teach them um, how disobedience to parents is considered a high violation of God's law. Romans 1, 2 Timothy 3 speaks of these uh, sinful people, evil, wicked people. They are so evil that they do not obey their parents. Right? Speaking of children. Now who is a, you know, there's over 500 times it's mentioned in, in the Bible. Half the time it's talking about literal children. Half the time it's talking about uh, figurative children. Here it's literal children. But wh- how old is a, what's the age category here? And I would say there's no strict age, you know, strict number here. But anyone who is fully dependent upon mom and dad for food, water, and shelter, food, clothing, and shelter, you're a child. If you're, I don't know, 50 years old and you're still living under your parents' roof and they pay your bills and you don't have a job and they support you, you know, you're a child. But if you're 16, you're industrious, you join the military, right? You're serving the country. You're not a child. If you are a child, you're under their roof, you're dependent upon them, then God's will for you is to obey your parents. For this is right. And Paul qualifies it in the Lord. So obviously, you don't obey them if they call you to uh, go against God's commands, break God's law. You're not to obey them against your own conscience. Against your own faith, anything done apart from faith is sin. You are to obey them in the Lord. Third group is all believers. And here, Ephesians 6, verse 2 and 3, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So Paul is quoting the sixth command of of the tenth, Ten Commandments, or the Fifth Command in the tenth, Ten Commandments. The first four are vertical commands relating to our relationship with, the, with, with God. The last six relate to our relationship with one another, horizontal relationships. And the first command related to horizontal relationship is with our parents. And the command is we are to honor them. Honor them. Uh, this is, uh, many Bible students say it's a determinative relationship. Your relationship with your parents. How you relate to them throughout your life. Not just as a child or as a, as a young adult, an adulthood. Throughout your life, how you relate to your parents determines all your relationships. It's the most important relationship. It's the most revealing relationship. Your heart attitude towards your parents. You know, our children, we, we joke with them about who they're going to marry. And uh, Elizabeth and Emma, they're so young. They say, no, we're, gonna, we're never going to get married. We're going to stay with mommy and daddy forever. And we're like, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> and, you know, we know that 
they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> that sooner or later, if God wills, they'll, they'll get married. Uh, whoever courts them, my main major concern is I want to have a meal with their parents. And I want to see how these guys, I don't care what their friends are like. I do, but that's not that important. I don't care what kind of jobs they have, income, education. I want to see them relate to their parents. That's the first and foremost relationship. And it's determinative and it's revealing. How do they speak? How do they relate? How do they treat their parents? Right? Ethan brings home a girl, right? I want to meet her, her parents. And I want to see how she speaks to her mom. Right? I want to hear how she talks about her parents. Because it is so important. And, and God sees it as this important. It is a starting point, the basis of all human relationships. Um, I mean, God... And it didn't miss any words. Exodus 21.15, whoever strikes his father or mother shall be put to death. Exodus 21.17, whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. Leviticus 19.3, every one of you shall revere his father and mother. I am the Lord your God. Proverbs 15.5, a fool despises his father's instruction. Proverbs 20.20, if one curses his father or his mother, his land will be put out in utter darkness. Proverbs 30, 11 through 17, there are those who curse their fathers, those who do not bless their mothers. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. That's how how important God sees it. So throughout the whole Bible, one word encapsulates God's command for all believers toward their parents. That word is honor. Honor. It's amazing what what we don't find in that commandment. God commands elsewhere to love your neighbor as you love yourself, but there is no commandment to love our parents. No command to like them, to have affections for them, to desire them. But the command is honor. Greek, the Hebrew word is kabod. It's, it's weight. It's glory. It's the idea of not treating your parents lightly. Right? Not uh, despising who they are and, what, and their instructions to you. Not circumventing their authority. It's an, a, a heart attitude. It's a, it's, a, it's a relational issue of your heart attitude towards your parents, and the command is to honor them. Tied to it is the idea of um, financial support. It is ingrained in that command that children are responsible for the practical welfare of our parents where if they're aged and they're not able to support themselves, it is the child's person's responsibility to honor them financially, to care for them, and to serve them the remainder of their years on the earth. And it's the only command with a promise. You do this, it'll go well with you. Your relationship with your parents is one of honor, there will be blessing in your life. It will uh, go well with you. The, the quality of your life 
will be blessed. And then the quantity, quantity of your life as well. You may live long on the earth. There is this blessing upon you and your brood. So, for everyone here, honor our parents, right, in our attitude, in our speech, in the tone of our speech. Honor them by listening to them. Honor them by um, serving them in a way that they would deem as honor. Right? So in, in our family, um, my mom's not into flowers on Mother's Day. Right? She wants the money that I would have spent for the flowers. <laughs> so she wants to cut out the middleman. Right? Just give me the money. Right? In your household, you did that. My, your parents might consider it dishonorable. Right? In our family, it's honorable. So you figure out how does my, how do my, my parents, how are they honored? And in that appropriate way, you serve and honor them. It will go well with you. You'll live long in the land. And then finally, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers, talking about the head of the household, but it's often spoken in Hebrews as well as both parents, fathers and mothers. So parents is applied here, can be understood here. And um, the command to parents is, you're under, you're, you are to submit to the father, and your submission is revealed by not provoking your children to anger. It suggests a repeated, ongoing pattern of treatment that produces a deep-seated anger and resentment in the child that boils over to outward hostility. Right? So do not cause a child to be so provoked that they're angry and it boils over to rebellion. Right? There are countless ways in which parents provoke a children to anger. Uh, Pastor MacArthur in his commentary lists like nine ways parents provoke children to anger. I'm going to give you a few and then I'll add to myself. One is uh, parents who smother their children with with uh, just countless restrictions on their, on their lives and behavior, not trusting them, constantly questioning their judgment. Secondly, uh, is favoritism. Isaac favored Esau over Jacob. Rebecca preferred Jacob over Esau. And, you know, Joseph's life is a living illustration of what favoritism does. Eleven brothers conspire to sell their brother into slavery because they saw favoritism. And this is one way we can really hurt our children. This is a very Asian way. This is actually, I think, one of the books of parenting, (laughs) Asian MO of how to parent kids. Use, you know, compare them and bragging culture, shame culture, and use favoritism as a way of uh, causing them to uh, study hard and succeed in life. But this is a shared way of provoking a child to anger. Another way is... Constant discouragement, being critical, uh, verbal abuse, never complimenting, never encouraging a child. Another way is to use love as a reward for obedience or withdrawing of love as a punishment for disobedience, making your love and acceptance of a child conditional based upon their behavior. Another is... uh, Physical abuse. Physical abuse. I would add two here. 
Um, maybe uh, this applies somewhat more to our church than churches abroad. One is uh, putting your children above your wife. Right? When husbands devote their heart, their energy, their love equally or, or more towards their children than their wives, in that way you provoke your child to anger. The one way to protect your child is to, to affirm this one flesh relationship that God has granted to you and to love God first and then love your wife and then love your children and then ministry and then the world. Right. If that order is maintained by grace, then there's peace in the home. But you make your child or children the center of your family and your children sense that they have authority, they have power, they have this love that mom doesn't have, or you, they have it in a greater measure, it provokes them because the center is not God. The center of the family is not mom and dad, but it's the child. And the final way, I suppose you could um, provoke your child to anger, is to bind on their consciences um, your culture, tradition, and your personal preferences or convictions. To have their approval be based on not the word of God, but on um, culture or personal preferences. So I think many families, they bind in their children this, this issue of education and achievement in the world. And that becomes a basis of, 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 of approval or rejection. Um, and for some dads, they base their view of their child based upon their athletic abilities. Right. So I, I was kind of guilty of this in a weird way. You know, when I was like in college years, my relationship with other guys was all dependent on basketball. Right? I saw like shallow and dumb I was. If you were good at basketball, I respected you. Right? I liked you. I wanted to be your friend. Right? Joe's all listening. Right? But he wasn't good back then, so I didn't, <laughs> I didn't respect you at that time. But if you weren't, if you couldn't shoot a ball, if you didn't have a sweet jump shot, right? if you did not play the game, then you know, you're a good guy, but the heart tie wasn't there. And a lot of parents, a lot of dads can fall into this trap of seeing their children and approving them if they're able in athletics because that is their preference, their, their strength, their ability. And if they're not athletically inclined, then there's disapproval, there's rejection. You know, it could be all sorts of could be cultural things, family tradition or personal preferences. You do this and um, you know, you're smart, but your child's not smart and they fail, it can provoke them to anger. Right? Where you, you know, my parents, their core value in life was humor and friends. So my sister had a tough time because she wasn't funny and didn't have any friends. Right? Back then, back then. So like, <laughs> she wasn't relationally approved in our family because she would tell jokes and just didn't stick, didn't work. <laughs> no one laughed. So, right? That can really provoke a person. Right? We're talking to parents here. We must not bind on our children to conscience with these things but instead raise them in the instruction and admonition of the Lord. We need to uh, 
The word is neuthetic here. Put into mind of our children the value of God's word. How their approval before God is through faith in Christ and through that faith, obedience of God's word. That's what matters. It's not about your GPA. It's not about athletic abilities or lack thereof. It's not about a beauty ethic, right? It's not a weight issue. It's not humor or personality or friendships. Those things are tertiary, right? They're negligible. They ebb and flow. As our culture changes, they ebb and flow. What is, what is foundational, what is important is the Word of God. And so as parents, you put into the mind your, your children, instead of your personal preferences, convictions, strengths, weaknesses, your own culture, instead of that, you put the, put the Word of God into their minds, then you won't provoke anger in them. You know, you'll instead instill in them grace, instill in them a freedom that comes from uh, the Word of God, that comes from... Um, the cross. So final thoughts, uh, four final thoughts for each group. Moms, again, your life and your family, they are the fruit of the gospel. It's It's not your work. Your work, moms, your work is to believe in the one whom God has sent. John chapter 6, 29. So, because it is Your work is to believe. Ask God to help you see more intimately your own sinfulness. It's easy for you to see the sinfulness of your husband. (laughs) It's easy for you to huff and puff because you see your child's sinfulness. What God wants you to see is your own sinfulness. In the midst of all that you're doing for the family, ask God, help me to see my own sins in my heart. And... Sin, even in my own, in all my righteous deeds, help me to see my sins. And in the midst of your sinfulness, I ask God to help you to believe in the gospel. That in spite of all your sins, all the evil and wickedness that is resonant in your soul, God has demonstrated his love for you. In that while you are sinners, and while you are still a sinner, God has loved you, and God continues to love you. Secondly, the children, obey your mom and dad, right? Your kids out there, right? Obey your parents, because this is right, God says. Thirdly, um, all of us, the gospel must not bypass our relationship with our parents. God says that's the first thing. You understand the Gospels? That's what happened, right? The timing of the commandments. They were redeemed from Egypt. They were set free from slavery in Egypt. And God gives them commands. So these laws are not a means to salvation. They're a means to sanctification. They're they're guidelines to how to live in light of salvation. They're already rescued. And God says the first commandment, horizontally, now that you're rescued, is honor your parents. Doubly so for us, New Covenant Christians. Now that we have been saved, the first issue in our hearts is honoring mom and dad. You can't bypass the family. You want to skip that to do ministry, you know, to be a missionary, to serve the world? No, no, no. Go, go back to step one. Right. Go back to step one 
and relate to your mom and dad and honor them. Be in awe of them. Respect them. And we know they're not perfect. We know, God knows, that they have maybe failed you, maybe sinned against you. And you struggle with that, look to Jesus. How he prayed for his tormentors when he was being crucified. Father, forgive them, but they don't know what they're doing. Consider how he forgave you when you, even though you have sinned against him, countless times, God responds, God's response towards you, to your prayer, as you confess your sins, is to forgive you and restore that relationship with you. Understand that even though we deserve shame and humiliation and to be cast off for eternity in hell because of our sins against God, what has he done? He has honored us by adopting us into his family, calling us sons, and making us co-heirs with Christ. In light of that grace, we are to honor our parents. If you will not honor your parents, that means... You know, Matthew 18, you have forgotten the great debt that was forgiven by God the Father. God forgave you of a $10 billion debt and you're holding on to $6,000 that your parents wronged you of. The way to forgive your parents is to remember the $10 billion debt that God forgave that you might honor your parents. And then finally for parents... We must not pass on to our children an enculturated gospel, a gospel that is, that is constrained, that is tied with culture. You know, our parents might have done this. If you grew up in the church, they gave us the gospel, but they gave us with the gospel all these unspoken rules and regulations that came from culture. And because of that, we rejected the gospel because we receive the gospel as a means for us to, to submit to their culture, to their rules and regulations. We must not do the same. We must tear away our cultural baggage, our personal preferences. We can't use the gospel as a means of our own agenda. You know, Whether we want our children to be successful or children to be turned out a certain way, we must pass on the word of God, uh, pure, undefiled, it's strictly the word of God alone that they would receive God's word and believe in the one whom the word speaks about and be Christians and glorify God. Well, much time has passed. If you would stand together, bow and close our time in a word of prayer. Lord, on this, uh, on this day, we remember, we close our time by remembering the cross of your son and how it's through his uh, gracious work on our behalf on the cross by his substitution atonement for our sin, cleansing us from sin and imputing us to us his righteousness. We are now able to receive these commands on without hearing threats and without hearing uh, condemnation. We hear these commands with joy because Christ has fulfilled them all in perfection and now we're able to participate in these commands. We're able to obey because the Holy Spirit resides in us.
So God, with eyes of faith, let us uh, live the Christian life as he has called us to live, and let's glorify you. We thank you for uh, our time together. I thank you for this church, and in your son's name we pray.